Hello, and welcome to the Jackie Brown episode of Slate Money Goes to the Movies, where I, Felix Salmon of Axios, watch a movie with Emily Peck of Axios. Hello. Hi. And mostly, this is an excuse for us to invite on absolutely fabulous, awesome people. So, Ben Horowitz, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Excited to be here. It's very exciting. We've been wanting to have you on the show for a long time. Introduce yourself. Who are you? Uh, my name is Ben Horowitz. I am uh, one of the founding partners at Andreessen Horowitz. Um, before that, I was an entrepreneur. And uh, I love this movie, Jackie Brown. So we are going to talk about the movie and when you first saw it and what we think of it. The Quentin Tarantino classic, Jackie Brown, coming up on Slate Money goes to the movies. Did we all see this movie when it came out? I, I, I'm pretty sure that Emily and I did. I definitely did. I definitely <laughs> did. In fact, I saw it um, at the Delamo Mall. Whoa. Which is where? Yeah. Well, That's it, the key it mall. is in Torrance. It's the mall where Wait, the- Wait, you saw uh, it in the mall the, in the movie? Yes, the largest. In the movie. In, is it is it the largest indoor mall in the world or whatever it says in the movie? Uh, it's very big. <laughs> I do know that. You know, I've been there many times. Is it the kind of place where you can definitely lose a car? Yeah. Oh, definitely. For <laughs> somebody like me, I was very sympathetic to that scene because I always <laughs> lose my car. Well, I was not because, I mean, if you're doing crimes, you should know where you parked your car. Like, basic, Well, that, right? that was Melanie's point. <laughs> yeah, she was right. She was definitely right. I saw... Yeah, well, I don't want to get ahead of things, but I saw, I think it was a, a Siskel and Ebert review where he referred to her as like a nagging girlfriend, who, and, and that's why she wound up getting shot. And I was just like, no. From 2022 standards, that was she was A, correct, B, not nagging. And C, not his <laughs> girlfriend. Yes. <laughs> so much to unpack there. Yeah. But tell me tell me the story. Like, you, you went to the mall... Because it was the mall in the movie? Or was it just No, no, I had no idea. So, you know, uh, I believe Jackie Brown followed Pulp Fiction. So as soon as it came out, I wanted to see it. And my wife's family, you know, they, they actually started in Compton and moved to Carson. So two of the cities in the film. And I went with them and it, we went to the Delamo Mall because that, that's got a great movie theater. And I'm watching the movie and I'm like, wait a minute, this is shot in Compton, it's shot in Carson. And now we're in the mall. It was it, it was really quite something. And and this was like right when it came out. What was what was the atmosphere in the in the cinema? Oh, people were pretty excited. I mean, it, given all the references, I mean, there there were so many things in that movie that kind of referenced not only the the culture but the neighborhood and so forth. Like one that's really subtle that probably nobody else who saw it got. But when Right before Adele killed Beaumont, he puts in Strawberry Letter 23 in the cassette deck, um, which is amazing, like one of my favorite songs of all time. But that song is uh, is sung by, or the, the artists on the song are the Brothers Johnson, who are from Carson. The details that he did to make it feel like there was, was really impressive. I've seen it described as Robert De Niro's last great role. Yeah, he was. You know, his role was so subtle. Like, you kind of had to to really get it. 
you almost had to be around people who had just gotten out of jail because he had that whole just got out of jail uneasiness where he was trying to adopt himself to the world or adapt himself to the world. And he was really, everything was a little awkward, even like, you know, when he smoked weed, he he's coughing. He's like, I don't know how to smoke weed anymore. I don't have to, you know, like everything was overwhelming. And of course, the big overwhelm <laughs> when he shot Melanie, that was... Uh, that, that was not planned. I noticed that um, when he goes back to Ordell's car and he give and Ordell gives him the car alarm beepy thing and he just stares at it like what the hell is this because I guess while he was in jail is when people started using them and he has to he has to tell him Samuel L. Jackson's character has to tell him like okay you press it and it makes a noise like wacko wacko and then he does and this was like the beauty of Quentin Tarantino's direction because then he does press the button and it sounds exactly like Samuel L. Jackson said it would sound and it was just like (laughs) so perfect and no one has to say like any of the background, like, oh, yeah, Robert De Niro's character doesn't know what this is or anything like that. You just get it all. It was so perfect. Records office. Hello, this is Max Cherry Cherry Bail Bonds. Who's this, please? Odell. Hi, Vic. I need you to look away in the car. All right, man, cool. We're almost done here, right? Getting there. Yo, yo. I need you to look up. You check out some music while you're sitting in the car. Take the key. Which one's for the car? Uh, this one right here. Use that little black thing there to turn off the alarm and unlock the door. What do I do? You ain't got to do nothing, man. Just point it at the car, push the button, you hear a little oop-oop-oop. That'll mean the door's unlocked and the alarm's off. Get in. You know, it was classic misdirection. You think, oh, you know, given all of the time and effort that he's put into sort of explaining how the the, the yes. MacGuffin works, right? You're sure that something is going to go horribly wrong It's going to blow this up or something, yeah. We never hear about it again. It's just no. like, <laughs> it's just a, a little grace note. It did make me notice later when, when he's driving the Oldsmobile, I'm like, oh, that's a different car. I know this because it had no worker worker thing, you know, to turn on and then... That turns out to be important. <laughs> but as you as you say, Ben, it is it is a subtle film. It's a it's a much quieter film than I think it's probably the quietest of all the uh, Tarantino films. A lot of the bloodshed is off screen. Um, the the themes are like literally adult, as in middle aged. I was just chatting with Emily earlier about how like. Neither of us really appreciated this film until we like rewatched it when we were old. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, right, right, right. Because you kind of so much of the motivation of the characters has to do with where they are in life. Yeah, yeah, all of them. <laughs> like, like I was, I wrote down like this is a movie about securing one's retirement savings because <laughs> yeah. Ardell just wants to get his money out of Mexico so he can retire. And and Jackie Brown's like, I'm 44. I can't keep being a stewardess for like the world's worst airline. Like I got to get my retirement fund secured. So really, that's all it is, a movie about retirement money. But that's it. I mean, it, it really is a movie about retirement savings and and other such, you know, like boring adult, adult themes like, you know, will I ever fall in love with someone when I'm in my 40s? We should probably say what the movie is about, or at least give a little synopsis, don't you think? So, yeah, the movie, it's the only Quentin Tarantino movie that isn't really written by him. It was written by Elmore Leonard and was adapted by him from an Elmore Leonard book. Emily, give us the TLDR plot. 
Jackie Brown, played by Pam Greer, is a 44-year-old flight attendant. She has something on her record for smuggling, so she has to work for Cabo Airlines making only $14,000 a year or something like that, which was even very bad in 1997 when this was made. And she smuggles money for this guy Ordell, played by Samuel L. Jackson, Another guy who works for Samuel L. Jackson Ordell is Chris Tucker. He gets caught by the cops and he's facing jail time. And so Pam Greer, Jackie Brown, she gets caught by ATF and the cops too, smuggling the money. And she's in a real bind. And everyone underestimates how she's going to get out of this bind, which is basically by tricking both Ordell, her boss, and the ATF and the police, Michael Keaton, and she kind of like basically schemes her way out of the whole thing and emerges triumphant at the at the end. So it's it's the rare feminist, slightly feminist, maybe I don't know, Quentin Tarantino movie. Though of course there are still feet, there are still feet prominently displayed in the film. Using law enforcement like that is um, a wonderful thing that I love to see in any movie. And Jackie Brown. It's something which only ever happens, like, you know, if you try to do it in real life, it would never work. But, like, somehow it's glorious, and it's a wonderful Tarantino ending. Um, and then you get, well, it's not really the ending, because then you get that, like, blazingly hot kiss at the end, the sort of middle-aged love. Are we going to get into this? So Jackie Brown is bailed out the first time from jail by the bail bondsman. Max Cherry, which is an amazing name, played by Robert Forrester, and he instantly falls in love with her as she's coming out of out of jail. It's like this whole love scene. at first sight, song, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And and it's amazing because yeah. she's like got out of jail, so she yeah. couldn't be more disheveled, but she's still she's disheveled. Pam, Pam Greer. And- I mean, she's mostly wearing her flight attendant uniform throughout the movie. It seems like, except at the end when she gets that suit and she looks great in the suit. Um, but yeah, he falls in love with her. And he helps her do her scheme. Like, he's an important player in the scheme, although he kind of gives it away towards the end, but too late. Um, but then they never, they don't run away together at the end. Why don't they do that, Felix? Ben, do you know why? Because they're old. They don't have that, it, it you know. It is perfect. You know, they, they already could see the whole rest of the movie. There is no happily ever after. So they just wow. kept it, they, they kept it perfect. You know, so they're too old not to do something better. so stupid. Yeah, I mean, they knew it wasn't going to work. I mean, she t- told two totally different people. Um, but, you know, get coming out of that walk, when they that first scene in the car, when he tells her that Beaumont is dead and Ordell killed Beaumont, the, her face <laughs> processing that fact, knowing that she's certainly next, um, was so intense. Like I felt myself processing. Oh my god, <laughs> I'm gonna get killed. What's gonna happen <laughs> next? It was so. It, it was just us an amazing piece of acting, which is great because you know in her earlier films like Coffee and Foxy Brown, it's, they didn't let her act like that. Like she was an action hero, that kind of thing. So you didn't see that that side to her and that capability. And then, you know, and it sets it up so perfectly because then she sees the gun in the glove compartment. She takes the gun. He comes to strangle her. <laughs> that, you know, that, that doesn't, whole that doesn't go well amazing. for him. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah no, that no, was no. great. 
Also, I was thinking like once you try and kill someone, you can't you can't scheme with them because they'll never trust you. Like you've tried to murder them. Like that's you can't. He should have known better. You know, he really should have. Or died. well, we're talking to Ben Horowitz here, who is the king of like you know the trustless economy. This is this is the oh. entire movie. It's the trustless. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, the trustless economy. Yeah. There's like no one. I mean, the only people who can actually trust each other in this movie. It turns out uh, Jackie Brown and Mags Cherry, but like even that, they didn't know it until the end, until it was like all done. And they, they kind of look back in hindsight and go, wow, like it turns out we could trust each other. Isn't that amazing? I guess that's love. And that's how you knew it was love. Yeah, that, 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 that was what so, was so perfect about the, uh, the love story. Wait, this is interesting about trust because there's another scene in which Ordell and talks about Melanie. He doesn't trust her, but he knows her. So he knows what to expect from her. And that's like kind of the way he moves through his relationships with people. But like that completely backfires with Jackie Brown, who I assume he also thought he knew, but in the end, you know, double crosses him or whatever. So that's not a good way to operate, right? I feel like the minute that she, you know, pulls a gun on him, he's not going to kid himself that she's entirely predictable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you have to operate in some other level at that point. I don't know what it is. Let's talk more about the trustless economy. Can we talk? Can Ben talk about? Can we talk about? <laughs> That'll take us down another road. <laughs> that, 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 ben is Ben is one of the um, puppet masters of crypto and Web three, and he and this is all based on the idea that like you don't need to trust banks. All you need to do is trust the code. You don't need to trust your counterparty. Oh. Yeah, the game theoretic mathematical properties. But you still need a Max Cherry on your side. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is it is a really interesting um, kind of point about kind of organizational theory and how do you get something done with multiple people. And the, it does start with trust. Like, how do you build trust? Because without trust, then you don't have communication. You can't do anything very sophisticated. And uh, th- this movie was really a good example of that. You know, starting with Beaumont, you know, like he he kind of faked, head faked Beaumont into getting into the trunk. Me and you go to Roscoe Chicken and Waffle on me. Think about it now. That gold special, smothered in gravy and onions, side of red beans and rice and greens. <laughs> That's good eating. Man. Exactly how long I got to be in this motherfucker? Never get into the trunk. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's never ends Lord. well. <laughs> but also, but yeah, but this is Ordell's problem, right? He has this criminal conspiracy, and the nature of con- conspiracies is that you have to be able to trust each other. But he can't find anyone to trust. He can't find, you know, he needs to get money across the the Mexican border. He doesn't know how to do that in a reliable way. He feels like he can probably trust his old jail buddy his cellmate lewis but then you know clearly lewis is not well adjusted back to the real world and isn't that trustworthy in the real world um well he's not competent he's he's kind of trustworthy but incompetent he knows for a fact that melanie his girlfriend isn't trustworthy that's the one thing he knows for sure so he he needs someone around him he needs people around him that he can rely upon and it turns out 
tragically, I suppose, from his point of view, like there is literally no one he can trust in the in the whole movie. Yeah, and it, it's kind of this interesting question of do, do you rule through uh, respect or through fear or through love or whatever? And he rules entirely through fear. Um, and the movie does a nice job of showing the limitations of that technique because everybody is terrified of him. That part worked, but that didn't quite mean that he could get them to do what he wanted them to do. Except maybe for Max Cherry, who seems to have this unbelievable poise about him in the face of having like guns pointing pointed at him. He's just like, yeah, okay, you know, you, you another you, middle aged thing, talking. right? Though he kind of lives by himself. He's he's kind of at peace with dying. <laughs> like that, that that that's the way I interpreted Max Cherry was. You know, there's not that much there for him. Like the job is a job. He does what he can. He's kind of alone. When he was telling Jackie Brown, like what he was doing later that night after he got her out of jail, and he's like, Yeah, so I was sitting on the couch with a stun gun waiting for this this guy to come back so I could take him to jail. And she's like, You did that? And he's like, It's my job. <laughs> Just it's my job. Like, yeah, that's what I do. Like, you know, I write words. He shoots people with stun guns and puts them into handcuffs and takes them back to jail. It's his job. No big deal. Like, it's all in a day's work. But in terms of Ordell getting people uh, to do what he wants through fear, I was just thinking about the hilarious when the phone rings and he, he wants his girlfriend to answer it and she won't get it. <laughs> I love that. Read it for me, would you, babe? You know it's for you. Girl, don't make me put my foot in your ass. It's for you. I love any scene with like phone plotting in it is so wonderful to me now because it's all dated, but it's still so great. And she picks it up and just puts it down. It's for you. <laughs> yeah, it's for you. <laughs> <laughs> this episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery which is a podcast company and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet. And it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisitions like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? That's the kind of stuff you find on The Best One Yet. So be in the know this year by starting your morning with The Best One Yet every weekday. Follow The Best One Yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at applecard.com.
Can we talk a little bit more about Robert De Niro? Because, I mean, I guess you two thought he was really good. I, I struggled with him. I found him so, I was like, why is Robert De Niro in this movie? I just didn't understand. Like, he really didn't say much. I mean, I guess he's just in it so he can, like, screw up at the end. I just, where was, like, the Robert De Niro character? You know what I mean? Like, he didn't make Well, I mean, you saw flashes, like, when he, when he <laughs> threatens Melanie with his fist, when he's, like, grabbing the money from her after the heist or handoff, whatever you want to call it. Um but really, I think Ben's right. I think I think it was just it was, you know, it goes back to Taxi Driver or the early roles where he would or Raging Bull, where like he would really inhabit a role, and and this was him really inhabiting the role, and and you kind of you never quite forgot you were like watching Robert De Niro, but like this was him just being that kind of fresh out of jail dazed and confused not very smart guy who kind of screws things up and like it's 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 a tough role to play i think yeah did you ever see that oprah had a series um on people getting out of jail uh and going to their families and like kind of followed them their first six months out of jail and i remember a scene from that where the guy was in like a convenience store. And he got so overwhelmed by all the choices of candy and potato chips and whatnot that he had a panic attack like right there in the convenience store. And talking to my friend Shaka, who you know spent a long time in jail, he said, you know, I know what that is. I've had those panic attacks to the point where like my first two years out of jail, the only thing I would ever order was fries and wings because I couldn't deal with a menu because you're just so used to this very, very controlled environment in prison. And to me, the De Niro character did just such a great job of, he was having so much trouble adjusting. And it felt to me like Melanie had like just sent him into a panic attack. He was already overwhelmed being in the mall and she's late and this and that and the other. And he just couldn't handle it. And she, you know, being the character she was, just kept poking him to the point, you know, and he's sweating. She said, you're sweating? Like, what the, what the fuck? <laughs> Uh, so, so, and I, I really felt he really captured that amazingly. Um, and it was such a character oriented movie, um, as opposed to like the plot was good, but the characters were so, you know, marvelously developed. Yeah. Yeah. So specific. I love like all the little weird idiosyncratic details. I think I already mentioned Ordell's vodka and orange juice throughout. He's always drinking a screwdriver. Love it. I loved Melanie's picture from Japan where she cuts out her boyfriend because she just wants to have a picture of herself in Japan on the wall. And she explains that to Robert De Niro. And I was like, okay, this is, wow. This this is why Quentin Tarantino movies are actually good. It's not to do with the things that I thought it was about, you know, when I was younger. It's actually just like he has these all these fun little quirky details that are just delightful to kind of dig into. Like he should ease back on the violence a long time ago. In the opening scene of the movie on, on character development, which is an amazing scene where they're playing, you know, across 110th Street and she's on the people mover. And Pam Greer is standing perfectly still like a statue the entire time on the people mover. And then she gets off and she runs <laughs> to the gate because she's late. <laughs> yeah. um, which to me was so much about her character and how like she, she dealt with the world. Uh, you know, just like <laughs> a little a thing point. that told you right off the bat who she was. 
So, so explain, explain, because I'm, I'm someone who I have to admit, I am someone who gets annoyed by people who stand on people movers. I do not understand <laughs> why people stand on people movers. Like you, you can just, just keep on walking on the people mover. But what? Tell me, tell me what this tells us about Jackie Brown that she stands on a people mover and then has to run to get to where she's going. Well, that the moment, that moment for her of like relaxation, contemplation, whatever it was was more important than the plan to get on time. Like, this is a person who lives moment to moment, and then she'll deal with the situation when it comes, but she's not planning. This is not, you know, like, that's not how she's living right now. She's, she's just surviving. But she is the one who comes up with this incredibly elaborate layers-upon-layers scheme, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, that's why that scene in the car with her and Max Cherry is so important because she's like, I gotta, I'm going to change right, like right now or I'm going to die. Like I need, I need a plan. Like this is like, it got to the most urgent moment where <laughs> Beaumont got busted. He's dead. I just got busted. Ordell's coming to see me. There's no question. I'm going to be dead. You know, it's kind of like running at the end of the thing. It's not like she was going to miss the flight. It was just that she wasn't going to run until she had to. <laughs> and she wasn't going to plan until she had to. And, and that was a have-to point. I, I learned via the Amazon Prime trivia feature that that scene of her on the People Mover was um, copied from The Graduate, because Dustin Hoffman, I guess, also is standstill on a People Mover as well. So. Oh, well, that's a neat tribute. Also a great movie. The fact that it was set in you know, that very specific time period of the mid-90s is interesting to me because I feel like I am, you know, a child of the mid-90s. I, I remember the mid-90s quite vividly. This is my, you know, this is my Gen X sweet spot. But the entire movie was so steeped in nostalgia. The entire soundtrack of the movie, all of the stars of the movie, everything about the movie felt like it was... 60s, 70s or 70s yeah, rather than yeah. 90s and the cars know, they, the it, cars were also and all the from cars. the 70s too. so good um every car scene had a great soundtrack to it like there was always a great song playing in every car ride max cherry picks up on on jackie brown's music and then he and ordell drive together but then yeah the then ordell johnny cash song in there that was really oh, good uh, yeah. excellent good driving very la but I that assume. was that that, that was great. Like the the use of the mu music in the plot when Odell starts driving Max Cherry's car and he's like, "You like the Delphonics, yeah. yeah?" He's like, "You do not strike me as the kind of person who likes the Delphonics. Like something is going on." Here. Yeah, that's a clue for him. Yeah, that was from the era when music was more segregated, right? Um, and, and it's funny because one of the things on this in the Super Bowl halftime show was. NBC put out an explainer on who Mary J. Blige was because <laughs> she's kind of in a way, which is kind of, which is absurd. Right. But on the other hand, like she is far bigger, like she's so big in black culture. It's like, she's massive. If you see her in concert, like the number of people who know every word to every song is just ridiculous. And, but they felt like they had to explain it. You know, she's kind of, in a way, one of the last big stars that didn't 
that wasn't equally big in both worlds. Like Beyonce is equally big in both worlds. And I think I feel like the Delphonics were not something that like white people knew about at that time. And so, which has changed because it used to be black music used to get niched. You know, there was a black music section in Tower Records and you had the, uh, what do they call it? The urban music department at Sony and, and everything was segregated. And so it was a little bit of a throwback to that idea. Like now, like, I mean, everybody, all the white fans knew exactly who Dr. Dre was and, <laughs> and Kendrick Lamar and all that kind of thing. Yeah, did not forget about Dre. No, the, the people who didn't know who Dr. Dre were were like, you know, the Zoomers, the kids. They were like, yeah, who I had are to these explain old to my kids. Too? Yeah, they didn't know who <laughs> yeah, which is funny. <laughs> anyone was. Yeah. <laughs> but this is exactly it, right? The time difference between now and Jackie Brown is more or less the same as the time difference between Jackie Brown and Foxy Brown or, you know, the Delphonics. And I definitely got the feeling when I watched it in 1997 that, you know, as a recent immigrant to the United States from a country that had not been touched in any way by black exploitation or any of that, I just didn't bring enough cultural knowledge to the movie in order to be able to understand what the hell was going on here that you needed you needed to have a certain background in a certain history and you kind of needed to know what had happened in the 60s you needed to know who pam greer was and i didn't back then and eventually i i learned but it did strike me that quentin tarantino was making a very nostalgic film it was definitely an homage to the to the genre, uh, the black exploitation genre, which you know he he loved those. The the two kind of kinds of movies he definitely loved from his childhood were uh, that whole set of films and the kung fu films, <laughs> and he kind of ended up making a couple of movies based on that. You know, for those of us who who really love Foxy Brown and Coffee and Shaft and Superfly and all, all those films. There's a feeling that you get when somebody finally gives them their respect. That's that's quite amazing. And I remember, you know, Pam Greer, I saw a uh, documentary where she was explaining the genre and she said, you know, we named them black exploitation movies because nobody was willing to market to the black audience. And so we were going to exploit the black market. So we called it black exploitation. Um, you know, it kind of turned to mean something else to like white film critics over the years. But, you know, I really felt like what he was trying, one of the things he tried to do with Jackie Brown is like, this is going to be a film that I can connect to the black audience straight away, um, you know, through the music, through the language, through everything. I thought he, I thought he did a really nice job with that. Um, Spike Lee's comments notwithstanding, but I, I, I certainly understand it. But the other thing I would say is though it's so nostalgic, it's very 90s. I mean, it just throws you right back to the 90s. I mean, Quentin Tarantino is the 90s director. I know he still makes movies now, but he just really <laughs> they're set not the as tone. tight. Yeah, they're 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 not as sharp. As yeah, they're, they're getting a bit flabby. Yeah, there's. I mean, yeah. it's a long movie. It's over two hours long, but it's not flabby. No, no it was, it's there's great. no wasted it, no wasted dialogue, no wasted motion. Yeah, you just want to, like, spend time with everyone. It's fine. Like, I was upset when Melanie got shot. I was like, oh, but we were just having fun. She, like, she, I loved how she compliments Jackie Brown's suit and everything in the dressing room. Like, just, she was, deli- she was 
and I felt like she was a lot smarter than. Well, there, there is that scene. <laughs> there is that scene where she's she's trying to persuade Robert De Niro to you know basically rip off Ordell, and you know through her pot smoking haze, she knows absolutely everything that he is up to and everything <laughs> yeah. that he is trying to keep quiet. And like he un- she understands his entire plan better than he does. You know where he went? He went to go meet that stewardess. Does that bother you? Please. Well, I don't know. You live with him, so... No, I live here. He just drops in and out. Did he tell you about that half million he's got down in Mexico? No. Yeah, well, of course he did. He tells anybody he's going to listen. Well, that's what him and that stewardess are doing. They're scheming on how they can get the money over here. And your point is... Let him and the stewardess get the money over here. Uh-huh. And then just take it from them. So on that level, like, her needling Lewis in the parking lot. It's dumb. But she's smart. So what was she doing? I mean, she, she Not there was smart. something weird going on there. I don't think she could resist what she was doing. I think that once he yelled at her for being late, she was like, you know, you're the idiot coming. I'm the brains of this opera. Don't tell me how to run it. Like, it felt like she was, like, establishing her dominance, her kind of, her superiority to him. And she didn't expect him to, like, panic Definitely and shoot no. her. <laughs> well, I mean, he didn't expect him to panic and shoot her. Like, why was he even carrying a gun? Like, seriously. Yeah, I expected it. Because <laughs> I didn't really remember anything about the movie, but I felt like he was going to shoot her. And then I remembered watching it originally and feeling like, you don't want to mess with Robert. De- like, don't taunt Robert De Niro. He obviously <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he shot a lot of people in much uh, <laughs> less confrontational situations. Yeah. And then there's one scene early on between the two of them where she asks him what he went to jail for. And he says bank robbery. And she's like, impressive. And you're like, no, it's not. He got caught. Like, that's not impressive. And you're, I was wondering, like, is that what she means? <laughs> But what's the money angle here, you guys? This is Slate Money Goes to the Movie, so I'm curious. Like, So the money, money? the money angle is I was thinking about this actually in the, um, in the context of the, the hipster grifters who managed to steal $4.5 billion of Bitcoin but had no ability to, to spend it. But this is the same, right? That Odell finds it easy to make the money, but he like basically, you know, it's locked away in Mexico. He can't access it. And... The sheer body count in this movie, which is high for what you know for, for half a million dollars, which is what we're talking about here, is entirely related not to any underlying gun trafficking crime, but really to money laundering and money trafficking and just bringing money across what has historically been pretty much the most porous border in the Americas. I didn't realize marking bills literally just meant you take a marker and you mark them. That's it. That's marking bills. That's it, you guys. I hadn't. I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know. I can't believe it. That doesn't seem very sophisticated. And I can understand why there's a case for crypto. I guess. <laughs> every every single Bitcoin is unique. <laughs> like it's just a. A Sharpie? Like, that's the plan? You know, back to Felix's point, that's how these um, hipsters got caught, is the problem with Bitcoin is 
you may get it, but as soon as you move it, everybody knows that was the stolen Bitcoin that you moved. So you moving it is very hard, um, much harder than moving dollars in that sense. It was sad that, I mean, it was only $500,000. I mean, I was like, could he even have retired? He was going to wait for a million and retire in 97 on a million dollars. I was like, I don't think he would have made it very long. That's not a long retirement, even in 97. <laughs> yeah. Just yeah. saying. Yeah. Well, this, <laughs> this gets back to the inflation conversation. <laughs> I, I, I feel <laughs> like Jackie Brown is going to be able to to stretch out her 450 grand in Spain yeah. to find a nice cheap place to live and she'll be okay. Yeah. Yeah, if yeah. I like if she's living on 16,000 a year plus benefits then you yeah, know, that's a that's okay. a lot of life even with inflation that she'd get out of $450,000. So you guys think she like she lived happily ever after and she was able to have her money and minus Max Cherry's 50,000 and it was all good. I hope so. You know, the the problem with life is, you know, there's not really a happily ever after and that you get bored <laughs> with the you know, whatever it is. Uh, so you, you do have the, to the hedonic keep treadmill growing and get learning. used to it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I, yeah, maybe, maybe we need Quentin Tarantino to, to come out with a sequel. You know, what happened to Jackie Brown 20 years later? Jackie and Max meet up again and they have some kind of, <laughs> it's like a romantic There you go. Comedy, it, can, it can be just like Before oh, but Sunrise, but with Jackie dead. and Max. Yeah, but Robert Forrester did pass away, I think, a few years ago. He was also just an amazing, like, the, the the performances in this movie, because it was a more naturalistic movie, more realistic, it had its feet in the real world in a way that something like Pulp Fiction or Reservoir Dogs, which were the previous movies, did not. You could identify with the characters a little bit more. Um, it created a, a a scope for naturalistic, realistic acting right which he found actors who really could do a great job with that um as you say like jackie brown's just facial expressions when she realizes that ordell's going to come and kill her that kind of thing that is rare in tarantino movies because tarantino movies are normally much more cartoonish something like inglorious bastards it's just like it's just like a cartoon it it always felt pretty real it was stylized at points, and they were kind of funnier than normal people would be. You know, Sam Jackson in particular was hilarious. But it, it all felt real and not over the top. Yeah, yeah, which was one of the reasons I loved the movie so much is he kind of, it, he restrained himself. Tarantino did. Yeah, Tarantino restrained yeah. himself. Yeah, much, much it, more. It was, himself. it was a... Yeah, he he reined himself in, which is he he you don't think of him as a director who reins himself in that much, but he did here, and to and and to great effect. So um, so Ben, is this his best movie? I think it's my favorite Tarantino movie, just because there's nothing that feels wrong. Like it's almost a perfect movie. There's no bad scene. There's no bad dialogue. There's no anything that seems out of place or too much. And then the, the acting's amazing. And I, I, you know, one thing that I, I think everybody appreciates about Tarantino is he casts people who nobody else would ever cast. He's not looking at the Hollywood A-list. Here are the people who play roles like this. He goes through his entire encyclopedic memory of 
you know, cinematic history and goes, wow, you know, we'll put John Travolta in this role or we'll put... But, that, but that's the great thing. No, the really great thing is he'll be like, he'll go up to Robert fucking De Niro and say, can you play the supporting actor to pa- Pam Greer? And De Niro's like, what? <laughs> and does it. And does it, yeah. Emily, did this did this make you reconsider Quentin Tarantino? Did you are you also with Ben that this is his best movie? Well, there are a few Quentin Tarantino movies I I haven't seen, like the more recent ones, so I couldn't say it's his best. But I I think it's the one I like the best. Um, I like Pulp Fiction, but I mean this movie is so subtle, and I'm I'm just not a huge fan of like ultra mega violence. Like I didn't like Kill Bill. It was like I stop. Like I don't. I don't need this in my life, this energy. Um, But this movie kind of like pulls what I like about Quentin Tarantino all into one place. And I will say I did not really like the N-word part. It made me uncomfortable. And it made me not want to talk about the movie, but I got over it. Obviously, here I am. Hello. And it's a really good, (laughs) it's a really good movie. So yeah, I think maybe it's his best that I'm aware of. Yeah, I'm I'm inclined to agree. I think I think it's it's the the quiet sleeper grown-up movie made by a 33 year old guy i mean like it's amazing how young he was when he made it you know then then he went back into cartoons in later life and not that there's anything wrong with that you know i i thoroughly enjoyed inglorious bastards but it isn't it doesn't have the same degree of you know maturity frankly yeah reality and and you don't love the characters in the same way that you love these characters that that's to me is the biggest thing between this movie and all the other ones all the other characters, like they're neat, <laughs> and they're they, you know they're they're fantastic. But Max Cherry and Jackie Brown and even Ordell and like you just have such a a connection to the people in the movie in a way that I don't think any other any other Tarantino movies achieve that. Ben, thank you so much for coming on. This has been absolutely brilliant. I can't believe you saw it in the. Wait, what's the name of that movie? I can never the remember. Dilemma, yeah, the Delamo Mall. Delamo Mall. The, yeah. the Delamo it, it's, Mall. It's quite. It's quite a spectacle. It is huge. Next, next time I'm in LA, I might, I might make a pilgrimage down to the Delamo Mall. So I don't think Tarantino thought of himself as making a, a '90s movie, one which was like really rooted in that particular '90s era. He, I think, he thought of himself as making a, a movie rooted in the late '60s or early '70s. But it turns out. That there, there really was a 90s movie in many ways. So kids, if you weren't around in the 90s, go check it out. It's, it's worth seeing. You get, you get a double lens back onto the 90s and then from there back onto the 60s. Jackie Brown, go check it out. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.